You're listening to the Fueled by the Outdoors podcast. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe, tell us what you think in the comment section, and leave us a review. I just hammered a good one. Drop the Asher. Never seen that deer before. It's a tough pill to swallow after having that deer at 18 yards. Welcome to Fueled by the Outdoors. We're your hosts, Rick Cates and Chris Leppert. What's up, guys? And Josh Luck is joining us again for another week on the podcast. Yep. Big surprise. Big surprise. <laughs> and But tonight, uh, I'm very excited because we have a very special guest. Mr. Bill Thompson with Spartan Forge is sitting down with us to talk everything Spartan Forge this evening. Bill, how's it going? Good. How are you boys doing? Doing great. Doing, doing well. great. Uh, so first things first uh, that we like to go into with everybody uh, who sits down with us is giving us a little bit of uh, their background in the hunting world, hunting industry. And I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, congrats on your recent nuptials. And again, uh, as we were talking a little bit earlier, thank you for your service uh, to this country. We very much appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the uh uh, yeah, it was great. We just got married uh, last week, so um, it's it's all brand new still. So uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Bill Thompson. Uh, I started Spartan Forge uh, a few years back. I don't know how far back you guys want me to go on this, but um, you just you know cut me off or tell me to shut up. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, for 21 years, I did targeting in the military. I was a military intelligence officer. Um, first 10 years, I was an enlisted guy, and then for about 11 years, I was a warrant officer. Warrant officers are kind of your technicians of the units. They do um, equipment and training and doctrine and all of that stuff, but they're also the technicians. So um, uh, for my time in the military, I worked in AI. I worked in offensive cyber operations, which are thought of like, you could think of it like hacking. Um, I did um, human intelligence operations, which it's not at all like you see in the movies, but you know, a human intelligence operations, like debriefing sources, that type of thing. Um, and then I also did like document media forensics, uh, did that in the military for those 21 years. Uh, the whole time I was in a lot of the stuff that I was building had kind of parallels to the hunting community. I was also a hunter. Um, so I'd write things down in like a little book that I had, I still have it today. Um, ideas that I would get as I was building something. Uh, I, I worked in a couple of organizations where we were actually building and fielding these tools. So I'd build a tool, I'd take it out, I'd deploy with it. I'd use it. I'd bring it back. I would tinker with it. And then I would, uh, in the military, they called it TTL-6, but it was essentially a level that I needed to get the tool to so I could go give it to special operations force or I'd give it to a special forces unit or I'd give it to somebody in the army or the special operations community that needed that tool. Then I'd train them on it and then maybe I'd deploy with them a couple of times and go show them how to use it. But a lot of times you know, there's a, these were little like one-off tools that were being developed. Um, and like I said, I, I started uh, one of the artificial intelligences that I built in the military um, was to kind of ingest um, different types of data surrounding terrorist networks and then make predictions on terrorist networks. Um, I assisted on that project for almost three years. Um, it was successful. Um, it went out into the, reg into the real world and was used for operations. And at that point, I kind of knew I had something for hunters because hunters and military commanders are, are both trying to solve targeting problems and my specialty was isolating the technical variables that are involved in a targeting cycle 
and then accounting for them and building solutions that could be brought to bear to influence these targeting cycles. So uh, I did that and uh, came up with the idea for Spartan Forge about seven years ago. I started collecting collared deer data, working with, and we can get into it later in the podcast, but um, I basically built my own sensor network um, on a farm that I had access to out in North Dakota. I showed some academics, some stuff that I'd done. They wanted to use it to like publish some white papers, do some science. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with them, ended up getting some GPS data, started cold calling other institutions, built my first, b- built the first neural network for predicting deer movement. What was, seems like 25 years ago, but it was three years ago or four years ago. Um, and uh, started, was going to work with a company in the mapping industry. Uh, kind of got turned off by the whole rigmarole. Uh, d- decided that the di- more difficult part was building um, the artificial intelligences and not building the map. So about two years ago, I started building with uh, two of my co-founders my own map, um, and uh, that kind of gets us to where we're at today with Spartan Forge. Oh, dude, that's so freaking sweet. So, who are are we allowed to talk about who your co-founders are? Yeah, oh yeah, um, a couple of buddies of mine. They're both um, they're the two of the best engineers I've ever worked with. I'm okay. an engineer by trade myself. Um, my co-founders are two red-blooded Americans, uh, Jimmy uh, Fresco and Von Belzer, and okay. uh, they're two of the guys with the pocket protectors and the tape on their glasses that I worked with <laughs> when I was in the military. And uh, they're the finest engineer. They're they're two of the finest engineers I've ever worked with in my life, and. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of DARPA, but that's yep. essentially the black box um, organization for the military that builds all the cool guy stuff. I worked there for two years, and these guys are as good or better than any of the engineers I worked with there. So, holy uh, crap, kind of a dream team. That's yeah. pretty cool, man. So one could say you're solid at collecting data to solve issues, <laughs> man. So. Did you ever actually deploy out to like an Afghanistan, Iraq, or you know anywhere like that? Yeah, so I did um, four deployments to Iraq, two two deployments to Afghanistan. A lot of people don't know it, but we were at war in the southern Philippines. The global <laughs> war on terrorism was launched down there for about five years. I did two years of counterinsurgency operations down there. I deployed to the Horn of Africa and to Northern Africa as well and did counter or what we call coin operations out there as well um and uh yeah so uh holy cow i think think all in all it was like five or six years of combat almost six years of combat time total um across those 21 years so you've been all over the place that's pretty cool any any favorite place you've been in the world uh, like combat zones or just generally any anywhere. Um, I love Ger- Southern Germany. I lived in Southern Germany for three years. Um, Bavaria is a wonderful place that I think some people know a lot about, but anybody who ever gets the opportunity to go to Germany should absolutely do it. Um, the South of France is wonderful. And then Scotland is wonderful. Those are three places mm-hmm. that I find myself perennially going to anytime I have the time to travel. Um, but, uh, Nothing's better than the U.S., of course, but yeah. you know, you asked about traveling. Absolutely, um, traveling. <laughs> those are the places I would go to when I have the time to travel again. There are other places that are wonderful, but they're way too expensive, or the people are shit. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, you know, those, those are my places. All right, let's uh, 
let's nerd out a little bit here. So I, I want to kind of hit a little bit on some of this collared deer data. And I, I don't want to get too repetitive because I know you've talked about this a million times, but I can't help but talk about it a little bit. Um, with the collared data, I feel like you said a very good portion of that was in the South. Is that correct? Uh, it was a lot more in the past. We've actually been getting quite a bit of data, especially lately, out of the Northeast. Okay. Um, I would actually say the Northeast is starting to rival it, the South. Um, oh, wow. And um, <clears throat> the Midwest, We, if I had to break it up off the top of my head, which I shouldn't do, but I'll do it just for the sake of podcasting. I would say 30, 40% of our data is from the South, probably 35% of our data right now is from the Northeast and the remainder is from the Midwest. Okay. Um, right. When I say the South, I've I'm involving, I'm, in, I'm including Texas. Okay. Oh, okay. We have quite a bit of data from Texas. <laughs> Do you right. include Kentucky in the South? <laughs> I currently, I currently would for purposes of, of, of <clears throat> saying what's the South for, for for a heuristical approach to saying the South, yes, I would include Kentucky in the South. But then you know what else? I I, I lived in Indiana. I've got family in Indiana. Southern Indiana is the Dude, South. If you you been. are not kidding. I'm it glad is. you said that. I'm so happy you said that. It is <laughs> South AF. In yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so and you know, and so is Illinois. Like you get down even mm -hmm. in Southern Illinois, there are a lot more. You're a lot more likely to see free or to hear Freebird than you are to hear, uh, you know, whatever you might consider northern country music or something like that. But there's, you know, it's not. I'm from North Dakota originally, um, so and, I, and I've lived a lot of places being in the military, so I have a pretty good um, understanding of cu cultural differences. And you even see rebel flags in like the south of like Indiana. Um, when I live there, it, it confuses the shit out of me when I see it, it somebody. It confuses me in West that. Virginia because I'm like, you guys do know why West Virginia exists, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> not only that, there's a very large majority of West Virginia that is above, you know, what I, well, I wouldn't say above the Mason Dixon, but it's north. It's, yeah. it's, it spans a good bit of Ohio. <laughs> Uh, up the eastern side there, so um, that's always puzzled me. But yeah, the cultural yeah. breakdown. I mean, I live in Maryland as well, and Southern Maryland is very like Dixiecrat, um, huh? Like what yeah. you would call like what I would call like blue dog Democrats. Southern so, like, the Democrat? guys that you would get out of like North Carolina. They're like conservative Democrats, right? They're like, okay. um, like you know, kind of like how Bill Clinton did did stuff you know it's like yeah. he's a democrat but he's also a good old boy and he's got all the jokes you see that right. yeah i know you see <laughs> that though in these places and it's just you know nothing lines up the way you think it would so yes to answer your question i would call kentucky the south we've gone far afield <laughs> that's the question that of the podcast so we've been dealing with that a lot lately because we put a show in chattanooga tennessee you know you have all these southern people that are like well i wish ever somebody would care about us in the south so we're like okay, let's do a Southern show. And they're like, you call Tennessee the South? And I'm like, yeah, yes, we, I we've, would. We've upset so many Southern people. Like, That's <laughs> not South. I'm like, the you Alabama borders right across, it's a stone's throw away. 
yeah, we're six hours offer, from well, northern Florida. The Gulf of Mexico before you're in the south. I, I said the yeah. exact same thing. <laughs> One of our buddies was like, "You better put that in Puerto Rico, or they're never going to stop crying." <laughs> like, dude, I don't know what to do to please people, man. We're literally, we're literally right there in the central part, what I would call the central part of the south, where you're close to just about everything and. Oh, that ain't that's not the deep south. Well, Chattanooga, Tennessee is literally uh, like Fort Bragg, North Carolina. <laughs> that's where that's where the guy that Fort Bragg is named after. <laughs> and he was like a famous, famous Confederate general. Yeah. In fact, if I, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. I'm going to get this wrong. Or some of your southern fans might um, chime in and give me the real history here. But I think <laughs> I think that I think Ulysses S. Grant fought General Bragg. In Chattanooga, and that was like the Battle of the South. Yeah. So, you know, you might somebody might want to tell these guys what exactly we're talking about here, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. I have a feeling we'd piss a lot of people off. <laughs> yeah, I probably should shut my damn mouth. Is probably what I should do. <laughs> you start talking Confederacy with Southerners, and they get pissed yeah. off real quick. Yeah. Um, but. It, it's been interesting to listen to you talk about the collared deer data. And mm -hmm. one of the things that really hit home with me because I started bed hunting this year and just try, I've been trying like heck to hunt differently and I'll, I'll never knock anything that's legal. I don't really care if you want to bait or hunt private or public or gun bow. I don't, I don't care, but I've wanted to do, how would you put it, Josh? I, I just feel like I'm doing right by myself by learning as much as I can on woodsmanship and how yeah. to scout and everything and and uh, put myself in the game. And I feel like if you're not close to a buck's bed, you're generally not in that game except for a few of your really good days of the year. Um, so one of the things that really just kind of spoke to my soul was when you talked about how depressing it was to know what you know about these, how these mature bucks and how they move and, and everything. So if, if you wanted to kind of dive in to that, really, I don't even care about the listeners at this point. I just want it for myself. <laughs> but, um, it's, this is all about me. No, we don't uh, care about all of you guys. Kind of chat a little bit about yeah. that for a minute and then we'll, maybe, we'll go on from there. Maybe talk about, because a lot of guys are, I know, I think Garrett Prawl did a video on it, on the, how to actually use the predictor as far as like, you know, where to hunt and all that, um, and maybe branch off there and how depressing it is to actually kill a mature deer. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack out of that question. I, I literally could talk the whole podcast just about what you just brought right there. I, I think the first thing is, yeah, I, I think the first thing is to commend you on trying to come up with as many styles as possible or learn as many styles as possible because the you know the first thing that looking at deer gps data which is really truth data um mm -hmm. it, it, it it you're not you're you're hard pressed to get a more accurate representation of how deer navigate through the woods because even if you're observing them all day long even if it's not 10 you know seven days a week that you're watching deer you're still not seeing them throughout their entire range. You're not seeing when they leave their beds. You're not seeing when they work scrapes. You're not, you're seeing them mm -hmm. on your field edge or you're seeing them from the bedding area. And if you're in the wrong bedding area or if you're not the right, right scrape, you're missing data points. So when you have a GPS collar, you're not missing as many data points. So 
not limiting yourself to a style and being able to recognize in the deer woods um, kind of what style is needed for a particular area and then having that tool in your toolbox when it comes to actually applying the knowledge that you've garnered about an area and then choosing a style based on that i think is extremely important um i'm a i i've got i've done bed hunting before and i've been not very successful at it i guess i somewhat successful at it um because i was trying to do it in the northeast and trying oh. to bed hunt in the northeast is difficult because they have so many options in the big woods for where mm -hmm. they're going to plant their beds i'm not saying it's impossible to do especially because i've seen data from some of these wily old bucks where they really actually do stick to core areas um, and they're very predictable even in big wood mm -hmm. settings because they're they've they found these pockets where there's no pressure but then i've also seen ones where i've seen bucks that don't use the same bedding area for like a month month and a half Wow. And then they'll go back wow. to it and they're not in the same area and they're very nomadic it, it really you know it really comes down to personality and i could talk about deer personality i think that's um, more depressing than anything it, it's very <laughs> it's very depressing it's very depressing but on the opposite end of it it's kind of like there's a saying in poker if you a chip in a chair and a prayer um so if you've got a poker chip in front of you you're sitting at the table you've got a prayer to make it. And it's kind of the same, you need to be, if you're out in the deer woods, you have a chip chair and a prayer. And even if, you, even if you're willing to kind of beat your head against the grindstone or nose against the grindstone and really commit yourself, if, if you're just moderately versed in, the, in what deer movement looks like and how, to, how the deers comport themselves in the wood, woods, you're gonna have a chance. Like you will get a chance. Now, I'm not, not always, but sometimes. But the, the reason I say that is because, and again, there, there's a problem that happens for me where I have an addictive personality. <laughs> I spend way too much time looking at these things. Um, and I, it does get to be when I'm looking at data where I'm like, I'm getting lucky when I'm killing these deer. Like I've killed some good deer, you know, six or seven wall hangers, um, a ton of does, um, smaller bucks. I've been moderately successful, you know, from some people's perspective um, and not, you know, when I, you know, compare myself to some of the guys in the pro staff, I've just began like Lee Ellis on our pro staff has killed, you know, more big bucks this year than I'll kill probably in the next five or 10 years. Um, yeah. He's hunting all of the time. Yep. Um, and he's also, <clears throat> he, he also is so driven and so committed and to spending time in the woods. Um, and, and he's, and he's, and he's, you know so meticulous and how he hunts having spent time with him uh those that guy really doesn't get the credit he deserves um because a lot of people are just like oh he's an urban hunter urban hunting's easy and it's like well i'm sorry you're mistaken when you're talking about a 180 inch buck um, exactly it might be easier to kill doe in those settings but um that amount of time and effort that he puts in and the amount of cameras that he deploys and the amount of time that he waits and that guy will call me and say, I just got a daylight photo in Ohio. I was sitting in South Georgia. I'm driving for the next 12 hours. Like that kind of commitment. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting up too far afield. No, no, no. I was actually no. going to hit on that a little bit and agree with you. We have a buddy. I won't disclose names or anything just because I feel like it wouldn't be right. But we have a buddy that worked and or works with him. I think he's done work with him before. 
and we actually had a pretty long conversation about it um, where he literally just said what you said. He said, people think because he's hunting in backyards and stuff that it's not work. And he said, literally it's deer 24 seven, 365. But at the same rate, he's the type of guy that um, essentially told us a story where they were hunting a big ass deer and another, they met up with another guy who was hunting the same deer dude literally left the area and yeah. said, Hey, no, you've been hunting. Cool. Good luck. At least and, that and, many times he did it this yeah. year actually. And, um, and, and anybody who any human being in the world that, that discredits somebody for killing big mature deer, I do have kind of a theory on the bigger mature deer in the sense that because they're so flashy because of their big antlers, they receive more attention, more pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think to an extent they could possibly learn a little more, be a little tougher or whatever. But with that said, regardless, when you're targeting five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half, eight and a half year old animals, I don't care where you are. It's not yeah. easy. And now when you yeah. talk about micro parcels, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's like trying to get the damn thing to step in a leg trap almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean Having looked at the, at the at the GPS data and spending all of this time, I, I suffer a little bit because I have convinced myself that I'm just getting lucky when I'm killing deer. Um, I, I've gotten data from Alabama where it was a hunt it was a hunt club that I worked with that I got data from. They had years and years of collar GPS data because they worked with the university that wanted to collar their deer and they allowed them to collar it. But uh, one of the the precursors for the study was the hunt club wanted to know what the deer were doing on the property. Um, so they, they got the data, but then what the hunt club provided me was they had static stands. And so uh, you would go to the hunt club, you'd sign in and you'd say what stand you were going to. Then you have to say the times that you were there and then sign out being a psycho, <laughs> about deer, being a psycho about deer. Like I am, I went and plotted, um, <clears throat> on this open source mapping program this was about two years ago every one of those sits every one of those stands and then i re went and replotted all of the vector data from the deer movement and i watched the deer and then i animated the hunters i didn't have their actual data i just animated what their origin point and then the stand that they went to and went back then i watched the deer react to these hunters that's um, cool yeah. and, and some of these deer uh would wind stands before they would go into these feeding areas they knew where the stands were and they were winding the stands before they go in there and they'd win the hunters and these these, these some of these deer got to be very very old like eight nine ten eleven years old um oh, and i've told the stories wow. before so i won't i won't rehash it unless you guys want me to but one of the, like some of these deer they had names for them they'd be like and I've told the story before, but it's so worth noting. And I think it's important for people to understand this whole hunt club of like, I think it was like 35 guys or maybe 40 guys. They'd all seen this donkey deer on this property and they named him like the traveler because they, they'd be like, oh, we, we get pictures of him during the rut at night once a year. He's on an adjacent property. Um, he's not killable because he only comes in at night. That deer had lived his whole life on their property what i had the gps collared deer data that deer very rarely unless he was doing an excursion left that property 
and he lived on a part part of that property where there are no deer stands. Um, they hardly ever went in there unless they were shed antler hunting or something like that. They had never found his sheds. That deer died on a hill on the, in, on that property. They had like 3,600 acres or 3,100 acres or something like that. That deer was there all the time. It never wow. lived on another property. Um, and they had <laughs> only awesome. seen this buck going in, like chasing. They'd see him between like October 28th and like November 17th. There'd be a period of time where they'd get night trail camera pictures of him. And they're like, oh, he's coming from another property. I talked to the guy that ran the program. His name was Ronnie. And he was like, yeah, we had this deer. And they had a name for him. Tra yeah, I said that traveler. He would come in there. If there was a doe, he might follow him around, you know, but we never saw him on the hoof. And um, they had gotten that GPS collar. The researcher had gotten the GPS collar off that deer after it had died and it had failed to move for like five days. It died on that property. So wow. what I'm trying to say there is, is it's, and, and, and I build, and I say it this way, in this way, if you have a dog, I, I, I've trained gun dogs and I also I have a German short haired pointer. I trained them to antler shed hunt. If you if you walk in and, and you hit that dog in the nose every time you see it, he's gonna start acting like a whip dog and he's gonna change his behavior. And whatever you do, if whatever you do when you go around him, you can train him to do whatever you want. Say say that the dog, the only time you don't hit that dog in the nose is when he pisses on the carpet. Eventually that dog will start figuring it out. And every time he sees you, he will piss on the carpet. Mm -hmm inversely train that dog to do whatever you want to do and and now you extrapolate that to a wild animal that is or is doing these things for survival not just to avoid a, a, a slap on the nose um and and these deer become highly educated they smell the trails they're running around at night they smell if you have static stands these guys are using the same paths to get to these stands hell they probably go in and cut the paths in the off season so that you can get to it <laughs> The bucks go there at two, three in the morning. They smell the trails. They know someone's been on there. And, and so they use this as a way of think about the dog. It's just, how do I not get hit in the nose? Well, I've noticed that when I piss on the carpet, my owner doesn't hit me on the nose. So guess what I'm going to do every time I see my owner? I'm going to piss on the carpet. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. And so you're educating these deer in that way. And these deer act that way. So I've seen that. I would say that's the story with most big old bucks. I've seen big old bucks that don't act that way. I've seen big old bucks that move during the day. And I, and I say this, and sometimes I lose people because I try to answer all of the messages on social media. So someone will hear me on this podcast. They know I answer the messages. They'll write me about a buck or they'll share pictures with me. This is almost <clears throat> daily for me at this point in my life, but I try to answer every one of them. And, and so I'll say this, that there's a distribution. What I mean by distribution is there's a bell curve of bucks, okay? The, the, the bell curve, that I'm talking about is the majority of those deer, eight plus year old deer, if we're talking about mature deer on this bell curve, the majority of them will act somehow in the way that we just talked about, okay? The majority of them are gonna figure out a property, they avoid the hot spots, they avoid the areas that they smell humans, they avoid the areas that they get pressure, they might only go into those areas when there's a hot doe or there's food pressure, or there's something externally acting on them that's making them do something they wouldn't normally do. There are, of course, on the ends of that distribution, bucks that are dumb and bucks that don't act according to that that metric that we just talked about and don't do those things. So, you know, I get pictures from people that are like, well, you know, this book's doing exactly the opposite of what you're talking about. When I'm speaking about deer, I'm talking about 
I don't even know how many deer I've looked at now. Every time I get a new deer, I, I plot their GPS points. Every mature buck, I've looked at every mature buck I have data for. I'm in excess of 500 mature deer that I've looked at GPS. Um, now I'm just saying mature deer. We're at thousands of thousands of deer, deer, deer. I wouldn't be able to, I've got too many deer now that I would never, I would, I would spend my whole life trying to do it. But if I get a buck on a GPS collar that's four plus years old, I will look at him from two to however many years I have. And I plot the weather, I plot the days, I look at the movement. And the overwhelming majority of them have figured out a way, even in high pressure areas, to avoid detection. And and and, and every one of them moves during the day. I've never seen one that moves less than 175 yards in a day, roughly. There might be some days where they move less than 175 days or 175 yards, but that's kind of like the magic number for me that I look at. If you have a mature buck, I promise you that between sunup and sundown, that buck's moving more than 175 yards during the day. Now, wow. some people might be like, wow, that sounds like a lot, but yeah, when you're no. talking about a, a bedding area that comprises probably 700 yard, square yards, and I'm telling you that they might move 175 yards, that really turns up to be five to seven bed changes where he's moving less than 40 yards per bed change. Yeah. So that's that not, makes a, sense. it's not a ton, <clears throat> but what it is, is there's an opportunity. If you know where that bedding area is to slide in downwind and get up in a tree. And if you do it slow enough and stealthy enough that you can get inside of that 175 yard area, I'm not that type of hunter. I can't hunt that. I, I don't hunt well that way. I've done it in the past. I've been relatively successful um not all that successful i've killed a couple of bucks in bedding areas my thing is scrape hunting even after looking at all of the deer data i still am a prolific scrape hunter um because that's one thing all mature bucks still do is they still now they might do it at different times of the year but they still make and tend scrapes um but one interesting thing about that and again it's from that same study i just talked about is scrape interactions probably 70 percent of the time is just winding them uh, especially mature bucks, they'll just win the scrape, uh, they, and they they don't feel a need to go and for whatever reason. I'm speaking like I like the deer have taken a survey. They don't <laughs> act like they don't act like they have a need to work the scrape. They'll just go by it. I don't smell a hot doe. There are no new bucks in, in the zoo, um, so I have no reason to go and lay down some tarsal or um, uh, um, preorbital gland on the branch. Um, and then, you know, if you see a new buck move into the area, then you'll see a bunch of bucks go to that scrape. I've always enjoyed hunting scrapes. Scrapes fire me up. It's a bias of mine. Do you, uh, do you get into that early season or mainly the October and November time of year? Oh, all, all, yes to all. I mean, I, I will, if I find a worked scrape early season, I'm all over it. Okay. Um, those are more difficult to come by and they're less frequent. Um, if I find one near buck bedding. I'll definitely hang a camera on it. Um, and then I find these when I am hunting, which, you know, I think I, this year I did maybe 10 total sits. So, um, but there are these areas where there are perennial scrapes where the same scrape area is getting hit every year. Even when the buck gets taken out of that area, the, the cover, the screening and the flow for the area is right. So other bucks adopt it, other does adopt it, or it's near a doe bedding area. So scrapes for me, I guess it's because I'm visual, um, serve as a visual indicator of deer movement. I hang a cell camera over them. 
and I wait to see the movement start happening. And that's kind of how I get, that's how I do it. Um, so question, question with the scrapes, when you say you find a work scrape. So I found with uh, trail cam, with my own trail cam data going back on, on some private and stuff that I'll have bucks go to like a mock scrape I have. They won't always work the ground. The vast majority of the time they will work the licking branch. So yep. when you're when you're looking for a work scrape, will you do you are you looking for the worked licking branches rather than just the actual ground being scraped up? Yeah. So I'm work, I'm looking for both. I'm looking more for, I'm concerned more with the with the ground um closer to the rut. <clears throat> but then I'm also looking for faint trails off of that scrape. And I will yep. hang cameras on faint trails off of that scrape because okay. you'll see two to three. If you can identify the trails, this is why this is okay. I'm gonna plug my app. But the reason why I the one of the first things I did with my application was I threw the polar plot in there for the wind direction was because I'm a prolific user of wind historical data. And it's helped me become relatively successful. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll, before I had my app, I would go and use I would use um there's a website that I paid for a, a subscription for pilots and the pilots had wind data and they would present this wind data in polar plots. So I'd look up my area and it would say, I would look up October to November, what's the, what's the predominant wind? Well, the predominant wind 43% of the time is a Northwest wind. So then come the March when I'm kind of walking the, the woods after the season's over, I'll locate these scrapes and then I'll look for, all right, if, if the wind was 43% of the time is the Northwest, I'm going to get south to southeast of the scrape. I'm going to look for a faint trail, and then I'm going to hang a camera on that trail and on the scrape. I'll do both. Mm -hmm. And I'll see, you know, a, a majority of the time, bucks will just be working that downwind day. And I'll look, and I'll look at what the, the first two winds are, and I'll hang cameras for those winds. And you'll see it plain as day. And you'll increase the amount of camera sightings that you get but then also you can work, it's easier to hunt a trail off of a scrape than it easy, is to hunt the scrape itself, especially when you're talking about like a five or six year old deer. Because a lot of times there, if you're just 20 yards off of a scrape, that buck could be winding you when he's buck winding mm -hmm. that <laughs> scrape. So if you can identify that trail using something like that polar plot, <laughs> which we have in Spartan Forge, but you don't need Spartan Forge. You can find those polar plots on these other websites, like go get it somewhere else, I don't care. But understand what that predominant wind is during the prime time that you're going to be hunting these areas and then set up your cameras based on that predominant wind because the bucks are going to be winding that scrape based on the predominant wind. They know that predominant wind just like you do, if not better. Can you go in for our listeners just a little bit on why you're looking for faint trails? Uh, well, the predominant trail would also be a winded trail, and those are generally does or young bucks. Yeah. So your your does and your young bucks will cut a heavier trail leading to that scrape or near that scrape. The scrape's there for one of two reasons. There's just a ton of deer activity because of food or because there's doe bedding near the scrape. And the bucks are trying to get like a who's who in the zoo. I actually have a theory for a third type of scrape I can talk about another time or later in the podcast, which I call it a competition scrape. And it's usually a scrape that's between prime bedding and, and a prime buck bedding area um and, and so these are scrapes that are getting worked by bucks that are in competing bedding areas or it's like maybe where two um bedding areas come together mm -hmm. okay time, 
there'll be a scrape somewhere in there, especially during the early season, and you'll see Bucks at least smelling or working that scrape because they're trying to figure out the dominance hierarchy for this next season. And they'll wow. use a scrape to do that. Okay. Now, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I've seen it in data. I've seen it across data. I've seen it in different places. I talked to Steve Ditchkoff. Um, I did a, a, a podcast with Auburn. Um, and I talked to him about this. And it's a theory that we're looking at. It's not backed by any science. This is Bill Thompson bullshit. It's just <laughs> a theory that I have. Um, but it seems to be the case. But anyway, those other scrapes, food, bedding, cover. Um, there'll be a there'll be predominant trails. The obvious trails are going to be your does, your young bucks, and the young bucks will be walking right on that trail. Your job as a guy who's trying to kill a bigger, more mature deer is to find that faint trail that allows you a couple of things. It gives you cover. The trail has cover on its own, and 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 has access to smell and see the doe or the young buck trail, and it has access to smell or see the area that the, that the scrape is at. Um, but it's faint, and it's not being used by every other deer in the deer woods. So I got into hunting public land in 2017, and that was my first very depressing, tough lesson was I hung all these cameras and what's set up and everything on these beat down, cut out for centuries, trails, creek crossings, you name it. And all I would see were the subordinate bucks, you know, little one and two year old bucks and mamas and babies. And then all of a sudden, you know, gained a little more knowledge, you know, podcasts got bigger and bigger, YouTube stuff, all that. And I kind of figured that out and I thought, oh my God, all the time and batteries and everything I've wasted <laughs> on those damn beat down cow pads. And you, I still see what blows my mind is I still pe uh, see people get so crazy excited about those beat down cattle paths. And immediate, I immediately say, that's why I kind of brought it up and had you, you know, uh, would that be uh, qualify? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wanted you to qualify that because I think it's important for people to understand that, as you kind of mentioned, they are a different animal and they do not move like a, you know, a nanny doe or, a you know, a yearling buck or anything. And I think, you know, in, in my opinion, I think that they, you know, and, and you could, you could say this as a personality trait easily because I know, there are places where I've killed bucks that come in wind to back, which yep. so many people don't believe happens. Still. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and then a lot of them in certain situations, you they're quartering into the wind and, and all that. And um, I think that they, whatever, however <clears throat> they feel comfortable within their own personality to stay alive and safe, that's how they go. And trails don't mean shit. <laughs> Yeah. They make their own trail. I so. mean, I, I think about it in terms of, and this is actually a military um, a military heuristic that I learned. Um, when I say heuristic, I mean like a um, a good enough way to know something about a subject. Sure. And, and so when I think of, I think of cover, screening, and flow. So is, is there cover near the area? Um, well, the buck's working the area. Does he, does he have the screening to avoid detection? And then does he have a way to get in and through the in, through the area, right? 
and then does he have um is the is the is the okay says do you have does he does does what is is the, what is the priority is the priority for him to see or to smell because if he can smell really well well now mm -hmm. he would like to see yeah. if he can see really well now he would like to smell mm -hmm. so that will affect whether you're gonna get that um quartering into wind that cording out of wind cutting straight across the wind and when you think about it pragmatically and then you try to do the same thing in the area it'll make sense to you so a lot of times i think a useful thing to do and i think one of the best guys at doing this is johnny stewart um is he'll get in and he'll walk he'll he will locate those dominant deer trails and those creek crossings and then he'll say okay if i wanted to keep a tab on this dominant trail or this creek crossing now i'm going to look around and say how could i how could i get through this area and keep a tab on this area but not be detected so where's yeah. that cover screening and flow and then he'll be like well that looks like a pretty like one of the easy ones for people to understand that i explain a lot of time is is saddles um deer use saddles but i find especially when there's lots of pressure that mature bucks use them less and less um but what they will do with these saddles is they want to scent check the trails that are being that are going through those areas so understand what that again if you have two if you have two let's just do it this way if you're looking at it like a map from over top are, are you recording this for people to see or not no only here just here. to hear yeah, okay let's one. do it this way if um uh if you have a saddle that runs east to west okay so you have an east to west saddle um and the deer travel north to south through the low point of the saddle right so you have two ridges mm -hmm. one ridges on the east one ridges on the west you have a low point between them where the deer travel north and south and kind of come from every which direction you've seen what it looks like all the deer trails that go through yeah. there yeah now if the if the predominant wind for that area area is a northwest wind i am getting on one of those hilltops and i'm looking at the southeast side and I'm looking at if I'm a buck that needs to scent check this area or just walk through this area without being detected, where would I come from? Where would I go to take care of, to take advantage of that Northwest dominant wind? Because the buck's not concerned with utilizing the, the saddle, the saddle. He's only getting near that saddle to scent check what deer have been utilizing that saddle because he want to know, he wants to know if Betsy is close to being an estrus and then he's going to get out of there. But they don't generally use the saddle unless it's like well, late at night because you'll mm -hmm. and i think it's it, it may have been back in the day that saddles were getting used more by bucks but once people started using mapping apps and kind of understanding how maps work and reading a topographic map saddles just stick out and just like that dog that gets hit in the face um <laughs> once enough bucks started seeing people sitting right in the middle of saddles <laughs> they're like all right i'm gonna stop using these saddles mm -hmm. um and, and and or you know the successful bucks that got breeding rights are the ones that are still alive because they weren't using saddles so um every answer i'm going to give you guys is going to be way too long but um, no 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 no, no. Uh, this is great man i i'd so to kind of touch on that a little bit um i had a conversation i had um a buddy of mine i, I think he might be on your staff i'm not sure um joe rentmeester came sure. down and with me a couple of times and we were talking about a theory that he had uh i mean it's basically um natural selection so when you have these bigger older smarter deer that keep living well then they breed you know and you know your better does survive 
and you know they all breed together and then you before too long you know you're creating a much higher quality animal not i'm not talking genetics with like antlers and stuff and body we're talking about intelligence and i know it's not intelligence yeah. like we are but i think there's a lot more to them than people give them credit for for sure yeah you think yeah. a lot of that's part of it well yeah. intelligence has many flavors um and intelligence is there's you know there's embodied intelligence and then there's actualized intelligence and embodied intelligence is like how your body reacts to um a stressor so you could say sure. like if your family's from iceland maybe you do better for the first two minutes in an ice you say you fall out of a lake into the water right and 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 it just happens to be that people who have family history from iceland can survive in the water the freezing water for 15 percent more time than somebody who's from kenya so they've got embodied intelligence that's been passed down the lines that's made mm -hmm. them successfully suited for certain types of climate and vice versa. The people from Iceland get dropped <clears> in Kenya and they're dead within three weeks from dehydration and sunburn. Yep. So you're adapted for your environment. And, and, the, and, the, and, and just like we know from evolutionary perspective, um, the, the evolutionary adaptations make you suited for the environment and therefore uh, more successful and, 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 and in a better position to breed. So we breed these things into them by giving them human pressure and then you're essentially changing the herd and and the deer are getting selected for things other than they would have been selected for in an area where there are no hunters. Yep. So uh, it makes total sense. It's just something you have to step back and think about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like, um, it, it makes me feel a little better about these things too. When you, when you talked about like, for example, um, deer scent checking saddles, I think one of the things that has helped my hunting in the past, we'll say, we'll say two and a half years or so, um, was understanding that they're not really necessary. They're not running a bigger, older deer. You know, you see three-year-olds running like a damn bird dog all over the place. But when you get into those bigger animals, those older, more mature animals, they are so concerned with efficiency, not just saving energy, but I mean, they use their nose to check everything. And then when I go into the woods with that understanding and kind of going along what you, uh, with what you said and, and um, talked about with Johnny, like what would I do if, if I wanted to come in here and scent check everything or feed or whatever it is that I've, I'm concerned with, how can I do this as efficiently as possible using my nose, ears, eyes? I know there's there's people that talk about deer that bed, um, you know, like we'll say in, in a cornfield and their primary sense is going to be their ears hearing people coming through, you know, any predator coming through the corn, um, you know, all that. It's just, it blows my mind with how efficient those animals are, especially with using their nose, not just a scent check for does, but for danger as well. And mm -hmm. we've had, we, you know, to touch on your point a little bit about, um, you know, them kind of learning you, we started hunting this WMA that had great deer on it. And I went and hung some cameras and me and my buddy go back to check them. And we had 
hands down one of the biggest, oldest mature deer that we had on camera. He followed my ass around the WMA the next morning in daylight, pure broad daylight. He followed my trail to those cameras and that was depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does. Like, it's oh, depressing. Yeah. I mean, the only uh, reviewing all of this data, of course, has made me see how they get beat. That's also made me understand how a lot of these deer are personalities have their own personalities that are distinct ways that they avoid detection or they do things. I've seen deer that get blown out of an area and never go back to it. But that is uh, that again, uh, this might be controversial, but that to me is the exception to the rule. <clears throat> Most times when I see deer that are getting jumped out of areas in the caller GPS data, um, I've got caller GPS data where they're, they were getting points every 20 minutes. Um, and they would be going in to check areas to restock corn, um, these types of things. You'd see the deer get jumped. I would say conservatively 60% of those deer go back and try to get downwind of whatever they thought just jumped them. Um, juicy. Yeah, but then 40% of them got the hell out of Dodge and never went back. So, <laughs> you, so you just don't not never went back no they always okay i was back. gonna say uh, they didn't go mm -hmm. back that day okay but, mm -hmm. but a lot of times i would see them go back that day like within a couple of hours i've seen it where yeah. the, that that mature like 140 inch which in the south is a big buck that's a big you know, deer. six seven yeah. year old 140 inch deer is back in that area in an hour hour and a half trying to figure out what the hell kicked them out of a spot um yeah. you hear people doing that doing like a bump and dump yeah um, a lot of guys that are, I feel like are good at it. It really depends on how hard you bump the deer. Like if you have the wind in your favor and you just like soft bump them, get set up downwind and wait and see if they come back. I feel yeah. like that's a, it's a legitimate tactic. It is yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So yeah. let's talk about, um, <laughs> let's talk about some of your upcoming updates for a little bit. Cause I know you got a lot of exciting things coming up here for uh, Spartan Forge as far as updates go. Yeah, so we just here about two weeks ago put out slope angle shading um, and 3D maps with emphasis. I say emphasis because on the mobile, I think we're the only platform right now that does it. Um, you're able to emphasize on the mobile. I think on the web, you can do it on a couple of them, but on the mobile, you can emphasize the 3D um, um, and, and you can apply slope angle shading, but you can also apply 10, um 20 and 25 foot contours on there and that's extremely useful to have the triumvirate of those three things mm -hmm. whenever you're trying to look for stuff like hillside benches um and uh, uh flat areas for you know scraping activity especially in hill country all of those things are hugely important to kind of have those three things together we just put those out um a few weeks ago here um and we are getting into i was going to release it in season but i want to make it perfect and uh, I was gonna release it probably two weeks ago and I decided not to. Um, we have this capability called Blue Force Tracker. It's basically auto location share, auto pin share, um, a couple of other little neat things that are tied up into it. Um, I'm thinking now it's probably gonna be middle February before I put that out. I'm gonna put it out for scouting specifically. Um, okay. So the reason I say that is because if you've got like two or three buddies and you're hunting <laughs> the same area together, Say we're hunting a WMA together. You can draw, you can draw a polygon around that WMA, um, and every time we're in there dropping points after you draw that thing, um, we will auto share points. 
unless the person who's in charge of the group doesn't want a point shared or whatever, he can or she can pull that point off. But for the majority of the time, anytime we're in their scouting, you'll get an alert saying someone's in the area scouting, they're driving points. Um, you'll be able to uh, uh, see you know, live location updates. So there's a couple of use cases for this. Like I just said, you hunt, like I've got some buddies that I used to hunt with, I don't hunt with anymore because I don't have the time. But you know, we would be scouting these 10, 20,000 acre tracks in, in Western Maryland and we'd be sharing points with each other in this like hill country. And we'd be you know, rattling off lat longs or texting points through Onyx or something like that. And that's all fine and dandy when you're trying to do like two or three points. But, you know, I think in this one area alone, I had like 2,200 pins or something like that. Holy <laughs> hell. Yeah. And so th that won't work um, for those guys, like us psychos, as I keep saying, um, <laughs> who are really trying to pull it all away and understand everything behind the curtain um so that that auto sharing piece but then also if you're hunting with your sons if you're hunting with your wife um and you want to share location or you know you're hunting with your dad and maybe he's getting older it's a safety thing but also for the people like up in pa who are prolific deer drives um and, and you know what we call up in north dakota like push and bush um you can <laughs> auto share location and it's kind of like a safety thing yeah um, rick needs that yeah 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 <laughs> uh so we lost um, a rick once <laughs> yeah so there you go you can auto share locations but then later in the year you'll be able to actually set the drives up through the app so you'll be able to draw out people lines and share lines and say here are the time hacks where i want people on here so it's a safety thing um and then after that we'll be re we'll be releasing our aware features which <clears throat> is just a fancy way of saying it's going to recommend places that you should go scout You'll draw a box around a piece of land and it'll just say, hey, you should go check this area out. Um, oh, nice. wow. And then we have another piece that we're calling the train emphasis tool um, that is just going to tell you areas to go in. Uh, again, it's just going to it's going to highlight for you all of the leeward points on a piece of land. Um, That's pretty cool. I'm not yeah. sure exactly when we'll drop that, but it's something that we're working on feverishly. Um, we'll be adding a ton more um, imagery in the off season. And then we have a partnership with a prolific Western company that's going to be coming out here pretty soon where you will be able to um, do research on Western game species and odds for drawing tags and doing Ooh. all of that type of stuff. Um, and then we have some a, a lot of great mo um, web map updates um, coming as well that I'm actually getting ready with right now. Um, so I kind of said it to you guys before, but I think it's worth saying once again, if you saw the change between 21 and 22, what the difference in the app was, you, you could enumerate those changes and then multiply them or factor them by three. Um, and it'll be what, how different the app is going into next year. That's um, amazing. So yeah. I'm re we're really just pushing hard and uh, trying to make sure that we're doing as much as we can for the hunter. Um, yeah, I think, I think it speaks. One of the reasons I'm drawn to Spartan Forge, I just think it speaks volumes for your company your inception, you haven't been around nearly as long as some of these other applications. Your budget isn't nearly what it com mm. compared to these other companies is. And then the number of people on your team isn't nearly the same either. But yet you are surpassing a lot of these companies. And I think it's just the passion you have for it. And it's like I said, it just speaks volumes. Like you're just like 
pounding it and trying to make it better and better, which I think is awesome. Yeah, yeah I've really come to understand what the Bible meant when they say people were possessed by spirits. I'm certainly, <laughs> I'm certainly possessed by the spirit of beating the dog shit stuff out of the, some of these other apps. Um, <laughs> and kind of, and really, it's not really even beating the dog crap out of them. It's really keeping them honest. They've yeah. been, and I'm not going to say names, but they've really been overcharging people for capability for a long time. And if I do anything with this application is I'm going to bring their feet to the fire and say, look, Mo Fracky, if you're going to take my brother's, you know, hundred dollars for that, he makes five hours of welding um, for this application that costs you $11 to provide for him the year for the year, I'm going to come along and say, well, I'll do the same thing for 30 bucks. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you guys can't do this anymore because they've really had a, a, they really bogarted the in industry and kind of held them because nobody really else. There were a lot of other people that understand, understood geospatial data, artificial intelligence, but also understood <clears throat> the needs of a hunter. Um, so they've been able to overcharge people for a long time. And that's what they've been doing. And, 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 and I told them this when I was working with them early on is like, you know, there are economies of scale here. So if I do anything with this company, uh, it's going to be keeping these people honest or at least maybe pushing them to come out with some more aggressive technological features so that the people that are staying with these other applications can at least benefit. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, my, that's where my passion is, is pushing the technological um, capability and the edge of computational capacity and what can be brought to bear for this, uh, this pastime, this sport that I love so much, which is hunting. Um, you know, every industry needs people that are willing to put it out there and say, you know, I'm going to do as much as I can for this community that I come from and that's benefited me so much. And it's comprised of people that I love so much, um, and that I think are some of the best people in the world. And, uh, I couldn't say more about the hunting industry than I've just said right there, because I think it's the truth. If you're looking for an affordable technical gear style clothing that performs well, that cuts weight from your clothing, but not from your wallet, check out Huntworth. Whether you're hunting early season in Nebraska, mid season in Ohio, or late season in Iowa, Huntworth has a system to keep you comfortable and focused on your hunt. With early season fast approaching, we highly recommend checking out the Durham lightweight hunting pants and the midweight Shelton hoodie. These items paired with an appropriate base layer will perform at a high level in multiple early season conditions when fishing and hunting. So we've been on the search for a new broadhead this year. And after doing some research and kind of looking around, we found this company called Afflictor Broadheads. We got our hands on some of the heads this summer to test out and Guys, I got to tell you, I believe that this head will be in our quiver this fall. Each and every broadhead is hand assembled in their Texas facility by people who truly care about your experience. This year, I'll be shooting the K2 Mini and the K2 Hybrid. And I got to tell you, I'm absolutely loving them. They fly great. They're extremely durable. And the penetration is just deadly. I can't express it enough. I also love the practice pin feature these guys came out with. So far, I'm really, really impressed. To learn more for yourself, check them out at afflictorbroadheads.com. I think every time you run into another hunter, um, 
you don't see this in other places. Like you don't when you meet another guy who enjoys the NFL, right? You can't assume that this is a guy who's willing to go out there and work for something or the good dude or is got good values or um, their head in the right place. Now I'm not saying it's that case with every hunter, but it is the case with like 70% of hunters. Yes. Mm -hmm. Most there's more than any other place. So I freaking love this industry and I love the people that are inside of it. And I want to bring as much technology as I can to bear for them so that they do not have to spend as much time away from mama or away from their kids and they can still pursue their goals and they can still, you know, like I said about my brother earlier, he's an electrician. You know, he, he, he would get like seven days off a year. Um, and, and he wanted to go out and put a dough in the freezer or he wanted to go out. And if he got a buck, he would talk about it for six years. Those are the people I'm building this thing for. And a lot yeah. of these apps have forgotten about those people and, and, and don't understand that this is also a blue collar industry. And I, you know, I joined the military from a freaking trailer, um, where I work, where I live with my single mother and I didn't have 115 bucks just to spend on property line data that my tax money already paid for. Um, we offer the tax property stuff for free. It's, it is, it is an abortion of economical ethics to charge people for property land data that they've already paid their county seat um, to update. That data is not that difficult to come by. Sure, I've only got about 85% of it. Believe me, by the end of this summer, I'll be up there in the 90, 95% um, um, realm on this data, and I'm giving it to people for free. So, so this brings up an interesting point that I'm in, like I uh, had talked with Chris and Josh about specifically is something like that was passed last year with the Mapland Act. Like, how, how does that go into affecting your guys's um, production? How does it go into affecting the application in general with information that's going to be coming in when, you know, Forestry Service BLM starts digitizing all these, you know, maps that they've had stuck in freaking boxes for 50 and 60 years uh, are you asking me how does that affect us how, how, how does it get integrated into your guys's program or is it, it like and does like with all the updates that you guys uh currently have and are coming out with does immediately when that does those property line data get digitized does it automatically get applied to that kind of stuff and does it go into the into your mapping system I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I only know that Biden signed the Mapland Act and that they're trying to digitize all of these um, inaccessible or unaccessible lands or something like that. I know a little bit about it, but I mean, I say the more data that is brought, and, and I'm sorry if I'm not answering the question um, correctly, but if I understood it correctly, I want as much data out there and as free and as, as accessible to the hunter as possible. That's exactly um, what I mean. And, and, and I want what what these companies have been doing, again, and it's immoral, if you ask me, is they have been repackaging and repurposing commodity data and then upcharging the hunter for it. Mm -hmm. Your taxes have already paid for property line data. Well, exactly. It's you can go you can go down to your courthouse and pull up a plat map and, and, and get get all the information that you that you can, you know, potentially have with that. Or you can go on your local G I mean I know at least in the counties uh, where Josh and I live in, you can go put into your local GIS and it'll pull up the names and the and the maps and all the you know property line data that you would typically see on some of this stuff. Yeah, and so for me as a company, we have about eighty-five to eighty-seven percent coverage of the U.S. right now, and we've been doing that by working with a couple of contractors that sell the data 
and cold calling county seats. I'm going to hire one or two more guys to do it this year so we can get that number closer up to whatever competitors have, which is like 93% or whatever. They should be offering that stuff free in their free version of their application. They make so much flipping money. One of the co one of the companies right now just did an $86 million raise. In other words, they just got $86 million of investment on top of a $30 million investment raise that they just got. Jesus Give man. the freaking hunters their free property data, you douchebags. There's <laughs> <laughs> no reason that they should be. Stop dealing in commodity data. Start building something that not everybody else can get through a Mapbox subscription and give them something for their 110 bucks. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to sound like a butthole right now, but <laughs> offer them something that is worth 110 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, it's interesting, too, because I got to make sure I'm careful here. I've already had cease and desist letters. Uh, so I'm waiting for my first one. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about special. I'm like nobody getting these emails. And I'm like, oh, great. Anyway, um, it's interesting to me how long I've paid attention to certain companies that pretty much had the same thing for God years. I mean, years yeah. and years and years yeah. and, and really for the most part, never improved greatly. We'll say, um, certain yeah, things really amount of the money, money they have. Um, yeah. 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 So, it's interesting to see some of the updates that have happened since Spartan Forge has come along. And it's what I like about it. You know, if we take my bias out of it, competition is such a good thing. Yeah. Competition, competition breeds innovation. It does. Yes. And it forces people to get up off their ass. And, and I, I have no ill will towards anybody or anything like that, but let's face it. When you got one guy, that creates a 10 pound tree stand. And then the next dude goes down to eight and then we get down to, you know, seven and six and five. And all of a sudden you're like, Holy shit. How light are they going to go? How, what, mm -hmm. how are you doing that? Well, they're competing with each other and competition is great. I think <clears throat> one of the reasons and, and Josh hit on this a little bit, one of the things that attracted all of us to Spartan Forge before we knew you, before you, you know, full disclosure to everybody that doesn't know, Bill was kind enough to sponsor our expo show and is doing so this year. But before any of that, um, and one of the things that I told Bill when I approached him about this was, in our opinion, you know, we don't know, but in our opinion, with our experience, when you find these people that are passionate about something, you know, you, I mean, really, it, I'm going to sound super stupid here, but um, I believe in the Bible and I believe in the truth. And there's like one thing in the world that can never be defeated and it's love. And I think when somebody actually loves something, not likes it or really enjoys it, loves something, they'll do anything to see it succeed. And I think when you involve that, that level of passion, the guy who sleeps Seven and a half minutes a day, I'm guessing. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah. literally, barely sleeping. You're, 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 you know, you talked about your addictive personality. And I've met a, 
a few people like that. And I, you know, a little bit, I'm, I'm the same way. Like I'm, I am beyond obsessed with hunting and, you know, everybody keeps saying, you know, oh, all you do is hunt. All you do is hunt. Well, look where we are now and look where we'll yeah. be years from now because yeah, not going to stop. So the ceiling for this app, this company is so high in my opinion, not because somebody else probably couldn't do that. You know, I, I'm sure there's plenty of companies with the, the backing and they could go buy whatever they want, but you can't buy passion. You'll never purchase that. And it's the same way why I think you could explain this better than any other human being we could talk to because it's your baby. So um, it's really cool to see and really cool to hear and uh, kind of be a part of a little bit, hopefully. Hopefully we'll come up with a badass idea that you haven't thought of yet. I actually think a lot. <laughs> so I'm like, man, I'm sure you've got some that I would love to hear. I, I mean, to first say what you said, to kind of echo on what you said before. Um, I, I would not call you foolish for believing the Bible. I, you know, my, I, uh, it's, it's the bedrock of my existence. So um, you're a brother with me in Christ. If you're a believer, like I am. Um, and I, I, and I applaud you for saying it on your public space here because Few and fewer and fewer people do are doing it, um, and I would back also that what you said about love. But I'd, I I would also echo that truth is uh, a close second there, or you could even say that they're 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 kind of inextricably linked. Yeah. Um, and uh, but that all being said, I mean, uh, I, I don't remember the author Hawthorne. I think it was families are always rising and falling in America. It's the same thing with um, companies. MySpace was the number one social media mm -hmm. network networking program, you know, in 2007. Now I can't, I haven't used, I don't know anybody who uses MySpace anymore. I want to um, know your top eight right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, they had something like a half billion accounts in like 2006, 2009 or something like that, wow. which is bonkers when you think about the amount of people that are on the internet then compared to now. That's yeah. like half of everybody who was on the internet had a MySpace account. Yep. Um, and now you've probably got 10 times as many people on the internet. Um, so, but the point, the reason that I'm making that is because it does require passion. It requires drive, but it also requires people that are building the product and appreciate the people that they're building it for. And I think that's another disconnect with the hunting industry is they make it on the backs of these people. And then they all of a sudden think they're smarter than everyone in the room and they forgot where they came from. I actually had this, I'm not name dropping. It's just how it went down. I had a conversation today with um, Ted Nugent's son about that very thing. He knows a lot of people inside of the hunting industry um, that kind of went up there and made it. And then they're less interested in whitetail and, um, and, and elk. And now they're more interested in fly fishing and conferences in Singapore. Um, and they forgot that they were a redneck 10 years ago that was just trying to come up in the world um, and, and make a living doing what they love, which I think is why a lot of people enter into the hunting industry, because they have a passion for it. Yep. Um, but then they explode and they forget where they came from. Um, that as long as I, there's a heartbeat in my chest, that's not the that's not the trajectory of Spartan Forge. I'm going to keep this price for this app as low as I can. I'm going to push as much capability as I can. And I'm going to work while there's breath in me um, to keep doing that. So 
uh, we I, I've been really fortunate this year with, you know, we've got a very small skeleton staff of people um, compared to these other companies that employ 10 or 15 times more people than we do. Um, and we're going to keep pushing capacity um, and bringing it, um, you know, to the table for the hunter. So um, I appreciate you guys letting us sponsor um, the Mobile Hunters Expo um, last year. And I thought it was a great success for you guys. And you know, I, like I said to you guys before, I, I don't keep my ear to the ground that often because I'm too busy in my basement here in my office trying to um, do all this. But I heard an awful lot of good things about it from a lot of different points of contact. So I congratulate you guys on that. Appreciate Thank you. That. We really appreciate it, Bill. Couldn't do it without these guys. I So we joke a little bit because I know you're pulled in a lot of different directions and you're on podcasts all the time and you're constantly working with this app and and all that and uh well i get pulled in a lot of directions myself not on your level um but we we completely get um how tough it can be at times to really be able to like deal with a lot of things at once basically and during the expo, I was a chicken with my head cut off, basically. Um, I, it lightly. I'm pretty sure I had PTSD for a couple of weeks. Every time <laughs> I hear my name, hey, Chris, I just, I just like quiver, like, oh. <laughs> people were just, you know, hey, Chris, hey, we need this. We need that, you know, whatever. Are we going to do this? When are we doing that? And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, uh you know, these gentlemen, as well as the people that, that helped, they gave their time and um, such a selfless group of people that, that did that. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody got paid, you know, we're building this thing. Nobody got paid or anything like that. Um, so we're really looking to, to make that something of the future though, and, and take care of that. But um, appreciate the kind words on that. Uh, we're, we're really excited to be partnered with you as well. I mean, like, like we said, you know, with the whole mobile hunters expo thing, um, I just feel like that app is so amazing. And, and again, you know, I'm, I'm biased here, but I, I feel like I'd tell the truth about it. And I'm, you know, this has been the coolest year of hunting for me, hands down. Uh, I know the, the same damn sure goes for Josh and, mm-hmm. and, um, Rick has even had a good year and, and we've all been learning a lot. Um, that app has helped and I, I'll admit this. I'll, I'll admit this on a public forum. I think I texted you about it already, but I remember when I was going through your app and I found places that were not like pronounced pro- public land. Like, uh, let's, what's a place we could name that doesn't exist anywhere near us. Um, the Allegheny National Forest. I don't know <laughs> if somebody goes there and hunts. Go get it, Bo Martonic. Uh, I was going to say Bo might. <laughs> so there would be like this little place in Pennsylvania that's marked. And I'm like, what, what the hell is this? You know what? This is um, ADHD as it is already. And now I'm looking at this place. And so Bill explained it to me that, you know, this is a place I've marked that essentially could be a place you'd hunt. You may have to make some phone calls or something to make sure, but it's a place that, uh, if I'm correct, is funded by your state or county. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So 
I thought, oh, okay. Well, I'm looking at these places and I'm like, this is never going to work. This isn't a thing. Well, as I'm pouring my heart and soul into trying to drag a damn deer out of a certain state, we'll say, I come across <laughs> this little place that just looks beyond juicy. And I had to call the game warden about it because I couldn't find shit on this place online. I couldn't find anything anywhere about it that said you could hunt, that they have white-tailed deer that exist there, nothing. So I called the game warden, and he told me that you could hunt there, but you had to get a permit. So then he gives me the number of the place, which it's like funded by the state, but owned by like a conservation group or something. So it's not technically even owned by the state. And I talked to this lady. Turns out they allow 25 people there and you have to draw this place. And and I'm just thinking, holy shit. Like, and, and I asked a few people about it and they told me you couldn't hunt there. They didn't know anything about it. And I thought, all right, Bill, you got me, dude. <laughs> so I texted him like that day. I was like, okay. But yeah, it's it's a really cool, you know, to me, I think it's it helps the mobile hunter out a lot. With with one of the things that I'll bring up is the the ability to have such insanely accurate um close together topo lines. You can change that, you know, uh with your preference. Um, hats off to that. Uh, my question, though, is with your with the leaf off imagery. Do you see that all? Like you just having at least we'll call the majority of the eastern United States knocked out relative. Like is that a this year thing or on down the road or? Uh, I look to add. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it's actually when you look at square acreage, it's quite a bit. I'm looking to add between four and five percent a year, okay. um, and that's it's a lot of money. That stuff is a ton, a ton, that's a ton of money, um, and it's my largest line item on my budget is that imagery. Wow. Um, but we're also partnering with a second um, company, and we're going to be adding more of it out west this year as well. Oh, um, cool. When I say west. west, I should say, you know, eastern North Dakota down to Texas. That's okay. West. Yeah, uh, so we'll be adding more of it in different maps. We're going to change a couple, uh, add a couple of ways to customize maps, make the customizable maps more evident to people. You know, a lot of people will be like, "Oh, I love the map, or I love the application," and they'll start asking me questions. Invariably, uh, one out of five people don't even know they can switch their maps and select different maps. So, oh, dude, you know, I've got some. I've got some ground to make up on educating people on i'm gonna produce my own video here pretty soon that's just kind of like here's how bill thompson uses the application just like from the guy that built it so that people understand why i designed things the way i did because there's this like progression of people that reach out on me on, on social media they're like hey dude i love that you're a military company i love what you're doing but the imagery in my area really sucks and i'm like okay uh have you tried like all of the maps and like yeah i've tried all of the maps and then they'll say I'll be like, okay, send me a lot long. And, then, and I'm, I guarantee you that your, some of your users will say, yep, I've had this conversation with Bill. So they'll send me a lot long. And then I'll send them back imagery. And they'll be like, holy crap, where did you get that imagery? And I'm like, it's in the app. And they're like, where? I'm like, go to the Lambda map, push the, push the um, gear button, and then you'll see SAT1, SAT2, SAT3 at the top. 
yep. like, I've never seen any of these maps before. And I'm like, so you've never seen all of the app maps inside of the application. And then they'll yes. be like, holy crap, this is a game changer. And then here's, it's not done yet. And then they'll get back to me and they'll say, you know, I really don't like the swiping between these maps and then the gear thing. And I'll be like, okay, I get that. Like, I'll probably come up with a different way to switch maps. And then they'll reach out two weeks later and they'll be like, I love the swiping of the maps and switching between the maps. Um, because a lot of them will be like, the reason I built that in there was because I, I, you, if you highly configure a map in another application, you might spend 10 or 15 clicks getting that the way that you want it to look so you can start doing your research. But then you might just want to see topo. So now you're yes. going back and you're clicking a bunch of other times to get back to just your topo. Yeah. And then you're like, well, now I need to see what would that property line end. And then now you're turning stuff back on. And so what I wanted was just you have your customizable map, the Lambda map, and then you have your quick swipe to see, you know, topo lines, a hybrid, and then just a straight aerial map so that you can rotate through them. And then people will get back to me and say, I was wrong. I love having the ability to swipe quickly through maps or switching the side that it's on. Um, I just didn't know that because I came pre-programmed from another application. Yes. I have had that chat interaction with people no less than 3,000 times. Wow. I've actually preloaded it on my phone. So that when people, <laughs> like, I could just copy and paste. <laughs> and then I sent them Garrett's video too, which helped. But I'm surprised by how many people aren't willing to just, like, I often will tell people, just watch this video next time you're taking a dump, dude. It's like yeah. the next time you sit down yeah. and take a dump, put the video on and watch it. I know it's 15 minutes. I know you're busy, or it's like 11 minutes. So, and then you'll get through it. And then invariably they get back to me. They're like, now I don't know how I lived without the map swiping. I, I agree. One of the things that I think that you're probably going to run into for a while is, um, and I'll I'll be careful to you know keep names out of it here, but essentially we had one company around for a long time and we were conditioned to how that app was used and that was the only thing you know there were others but they they didn't even nothing that right. even came close so i wasn't wasting my time so i think it's similar to switching from a you know an android to an iphone or an iphone to an android or whatever you exactly just exactly like that you yeah. get stuck in your ways and i also will say this much um, there are certain generations of people that don't, they're scared to death to play with anything. If they hit a button, the world's going to freaking explode. Right. I'm like, hey, sit down. Have you not just sat down and played with this and messed around? And I think one of the things, and I don't know if this is on purpose or not, or if it's by accident or what, but when I used to use another company, um, there were some times where I'm navigating through the woods and I would accidentally touch the screen just barely. Mm -hmm. And then the big bright blight, you know, you're in the dark, you're, you're blinded by the big white informational uh, icon or whatever that pops up and shows you the property line with Spartan forge. You really got to hold on that for a second and, you know, select it. If you just accidentally touch you know, caress your damn phone screen for God's sake. It's not like, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, cool. Now I got to exit out of this. Stop what I'm doing. I've lost all my momentum going up this mountain. And now all I want to do is sit down and cry because I'm blind and seeing purple. But um, I think that if 
if we could probably get people to just play with the app a little bit and understand that it doesn't work like anything else. And, and I've heard people, I, I, we had one guy say it wasn't user friendly and I thought, well, can you name something that's like, you know, other than the iPhone, maybe, can you name something that, you, you know, what does user friendly mean to you exactly? Like, cause to me, oftentimes when I hear user friendly, I think limited and I don't think that it gets very complex. Um, I think you get very, very complex with this app. And I think that once people mess with it a little bit while they're in the woods and, you know, hopefully, you know, I, I think a lot of people use an app when they get out of their truck and they walk to their stand. Right. Well, people that I'm friends with probably spend bare minimum of two hours a week, and this is when they don't give a shit, e-scouting. I probably, during during the preseason and, and in-season, I'm likely spending two hours a day on yeah. my app e-scouting. Yeah. And like when I know that I've got a hunt coming up out of state and I'm really trying – we're on there all the time. So I think that's another issue that you run into um, with that. So, yeah. And I mean, we have also like a bunch of like little things that we've put in there. Um, and and, then, and I wanted to kind of create things that were different from what was out there. I just didn't want to create another app that was out there and then just have the same things in there and then add stuff later. Like I wanted to kind of add the new stuff first. So they knew why we are different, what we are doing differently. And then add some of those other things that people like really like from the other apps or whatever. Um, because I wanted to create the value proposition right away. So there, you know, if you just fart around with the app, if there's even stuff on there that is not in videos that I need to add in videos. Um, like one of them would be like, if you just double click the compass, it'll add a point in the middle of your screen. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If you long hold on the compass, it'll switch the sides that it's on. If you tap the compass, you can get the tools. Now, people are like, well, why is everything built around the compass? And then when I tell someone and then they get it and they've used it, they're like, oh, that's awesome. It's because I wanted hunters to be able to access everything with their thumb. Yep, everyone, everything, should be, yeah. everything should be able to get access to with your thumb. You shouldn't be able to have to drop your bow or drop your stand or drop your pack or whatever, or the antler, hopefully, that you're dragging. Um, to, to look and use the application, you should get to it all from your thumb. And there's a bunch of other little things like that, and we're introducing more. One of them that you'll really like um, that we're probably – I'm hoping to get to before the next season. It might be the next season. is just what I call blacked-out mode, which is just the screen will just turn black, and there'll be a light green hue, and everything on the app will be blacked out. So you can maintain your night vision when you're using the application in a low oh, light. Oh, man. Mode. So it's just yeah. stuff like that um, that – to a, a normal hunter that doesn't spend a ton of time in the woods or doesn't think super deeply about these things is like, ah, I can take it or leave it. But to the people that are really worried about, you know, low light settings, light discipline, if they're getting into pressured areas, you said you do a lot of bed hunting. Um, I use like, if I use a light when I go into the woods in the morning when it's really early, I will use a super faint red light. And that will be all I use. And I never use the big bright lights because, you know, if you are up in a stand, you can see somebody with a light from 10 miles away mm -hmm. who are loud enough as it is. So I'll try to use a very faint red light just so I can make sure I'm not stepping or stomping on something or falling over something. 
And then if I can do that with like a light green hue, it's just the screen will be black and everything on the screen will just be drawn with a green line. Yeah. So it, it'll just be a really light version of the application that won't mess with your eyes or mess with your light discipline whenever you're trying to get into your woods. Is that for everybody? No, but um, another one, just a very quick point, point of contact that I'm doing, I call old man mode, where it's just going to increase everything on the screen by like three times. So oh, when you've cool. got like your nice. uncle or, you know, your grandpa or someone like that who wants to use the application, everything on the, it's like kind of like those bumblebee phones that you see on Fox News <laughs> in the morning. Yeah. Where it's like a huge phone with huge jitterbug. The jitterbug. Yeah. yeah. The jitterbug. Yeah. 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 It'll just be the jitter. Maybe I'll call it the jitterbug mode. But it'll be the jitterbug <laughs> you got for, for the application. That requires a whole app rebuild. That's not just a simple thing that I do. Like, I have to go back and redesign everything so that it all fits on the screen and looks nice. And that's going to cost me a week and a half of just designing an Adobe XD um, before I can put that out there. But wow. I want that for the 3% of guys, old guys who are, you know, like, I really like this app because I'm blind and I don't have my bifocals with me everywhere. And I want to be able to use this app when I'm going into the woods. Um, be, so, be, be honest. Who on your staff asked for that? Bomar Tonic's dad was the first guy that oh, really but I was I had already put it in the pipeline when he asked me for it. So I, <laughs> his name's Joe Martonic. And I said we were at the we were at Deer Camp this year. And I said, Joe, I've already started building it. It's called old man mode. And he was like, Oh, Bill, thank you so much. <laughs> That's awesome. That'll be really cool. My father-in-law will be excited about that one. I've been yeah, trying to teach him how to use apps just to navigate and help him with his confidence because he's not i've always been with him when he hunts and i got him into the public land thing and kind of showed him I, I was fortunate enough to get to kind of go out and scout with jake bush a little bit and learn a lot and some some other guys as well and i my father-in-law kind of sort of saw something or whatever and he's like will you will you take me out there and kind of show me what you're doing and i thought Hell yeah, well, let's go. And yep. so I showed him the power of white oak acorns, you know, in early October this year. And he, it blew his mind that we could, you know, we could go out and kill a deer on command without having a bag of corn and private land and all that. And uh, so I've been teaching him to use, um, you know, the app and, and how to just basic, very basic stuff and navigate. So that'll be cool to bring up once that yeah, comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, my we dad would appreciate that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying my father would appreciate that. I noticed over Same here. Christmas break that his vision's getting a little worse. <laughs> yeah. He's younger than you. We'll be introducing more stuff like that. I'm going to be doing a bunch of cool stuff with Easter eggs as well. Um, inside of the application, uh, stuff that only users will get access to. Um, I've seen other companies try to do this, but I'm going to do it and it's actually going to be cool. Um, we're going to you know, maybe play some bows out in the middle of the woods, like a couple of, uh, top of the line bows and then little Easter eggs and people use certain icons, they'll get access to them. Um, a couple funny things like on the, on the desktop app, we're going to have what's called the boss key. So you'll be able to push F12 when you're doing online scouting and it'll switch to an Excel spreadsheet. Um, nice. nice. Yeah. So you'll just have an Excel spreadsheet sitting right there. So if somebody's walking up and you're sitting there trying to look at your spot at work, you can just hit F12 and now it's an Excel. <laughs> you can interact with. So, so right there, 
that is, you know, for a multitude of reasons, that right there. Let's hide what we're really doing and don't look at my damn waypoints. Yeah. Turn your damn face the other way while I have this hand up. Yeah. And then That's the next awesome. one I'm going to do is going to be called the bride mode. And then that will just be giftsformywife.com. And it'll just be right up on the screen. So. That's you awesome. know, F11 for the boss, F12 for the wife, or vice versa. And uh, uh, it's just little cool. fun things like that, too. You know, that it's show awesome. that we're thinking about the customer. Hell yeah, man. Um, Good deal. Josh, did you have any other questions or anything before I ask one of mine? Because I haven't let you talk a lot. No, we've hit on a lot of them. Uh, I did kind of want to hit on a little bit as far as like the deer prediction. We got into it early on as far as the data and all that. But I first heard of Spartan Forge. I was listening to East Me Sweat's podcast with Bo Martonic. And it was like March of 21. So I think it was before the application came out. I heard uh, I heard you on there, Bill. I think uh, Johnny Stewart was also on there. Um, so I got real intrigued by it. And then once the beta came out, I, I got the beta. But what drew me to it, so I, I work in healthcare. So I'm a physical therapist. So when I'm treating my patients, right, in healthcare, they, they harp on um, evidence-based practice. And essentially what that is, is given XYZ diagnosis, this is what the data says as far as treatment interventions or what the best treatment interventions are. And your your dear predictor, the AI, right, it's, it's essentially the same thing. Like here's the data and this is what the data is saying. So I thought that was really cool. Like. I, I've, I know you've explained it on other podcasts. You can't really get more accurate than that. You have these other applications that do similar things, but you have the human element in it that naturally produces some error within yes. the application. Yeah. With with just the data, you you take that out of the equation. So yeah, yeah. And I mean, I said it earlier. Even I'm biased to scrape hunting. So mm -hmm. if I were to make a model that's a Bill Thompson model, first I wouldn't use it. But secondly, um, it would be inherent, inherently biased towards my observation of what gets deer moving near scrapes or what gets deer moving in my my part of the U.S. or what gets, um, you know, what have you. Humans just come with bias. We check our phone. We're looking at our watch. We're pissed at our wife. We're, we're, we're missing things in the woods, whereas a collar around a neck isn't missing those things. And you know, evident you brought up that evidence-based practice um, in nursing. My mother was a nurse. Um, I, I've heard that term before and read about that, I believe, somewhere. But um, the analogs are there the same in that you don't want to draw a hypothesis based on something that you don't have truth data on. Mm -hmm. So whether that's you know treating a you know a, a patient with COPD with oxygen or diagnosing what a buck bedding area looks like, like it's it's you wouldn't you wouldn't want to bring data into your equation that doesn't serve the customer or the patient in your case. Um, and, and so, uh, but you also wouldn't want to have one doctor um, making all of the prescriptions on uh, why this person should be intubated versus this person shouldn't be in one particular part of the country. Like one easy way to do it would be like, maybe you're looking at Macon, Georgia, or you're and you're looking at Atlanta, Georgia, and maybe in Macon the body fat percentage is higher than it is in Atlanta per person. So 
you get one doctor down there that says this is the best treatment for diabetes down here and the other one up here says here's the best treatment for it well if you're using one of these deer prediction apps you'd just be using one of those doctors prescriptions based on what you know mm-hmm. is happening but what we're doing with spartan forges we're ingesting these case studies from all over the country and we're saying generally this is what works and generally this is what doesn't work so i talked about like distributions and bell curves earlier and it's that thing is that we're just we're trying to predict using data from all over the country and not present something to the user that's biased inherently or that um uh you know there's stuff that really angers me is when i'll see on these predictions where it's like all of the deer will be moving tomorrow at 10 a.m in this area and i'm just like that so I, there's a lot, there's a, a multifaceted amount of reasons why that in particular upsets me. I guess the first reason I'd say why it upsets me is if you give me 11 deer, I will show you 11 different movement times throughout the morning mm-hmm. of when deer are moving and where they're moving and why they're moving and what they're doing because they're deer. And there's a, a ton of different reasons, which is why we only use three buckets in Spartan Forge um, for where they are in their range. Uh, it would, it's not possible. I mean, just think about it. Just think about it pragmatically. You're in an area and let's just call it 250 square miles. And that the prediction is really good movement's going to be at 10 AM in the morning. So if you had a God's eye view, you're watching 250 deer stand up at 10 AM and just start walking around. Is that what we're saying? All right. Think about that. Right. Just think, just think about the second and third order effects of that. Um, And then people will message me and say, you know, you should, you should use your data and like come up with an algorithm where, um, you know, you can tell us what time of the day they're going to be more active. And I'm like, well, I can, without an algorithm, I can tell you the time of the day they're going to be more active. It's going to be during the crepuscular hours. Exactly. Sunset every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it doesn't ever change. All right, I got to interrupt you. Go I have to it. ask you this. Go for it. Do you do you believe and have you seen I don't know how far your stuff goes here but do you feel like at some point during the day the movement is wind based? When I say that wind speed uh well I, I so to be honest with you I'd love to be the man of the million answers. I haven't looked at wind speed. Okay. What I have and I, now, I'll take that for action and I'll look at it the next time we talk. Um, oh. I, I have notes here from our conversation. I do this with every podcast that I do. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so that next time I do a podcast with someone, I can answer this question. So I'm writing down right now wind okay. speed, correlation with wind variability. Um, and so what I will say is, I've seen when wind directions change, I see movement among the mature bucks. Yep. I don't see movements with does. I don't see necessarily a lot of movement with two and a half year old deer. Um, now, what I'm not saying is that the deer is moving a mile because the wind changed from a northwest sure. to south. But what I do see is, um, and it's usually ellipse. It usually looks like an egg, like an ellipse. So when you see a bedding area for a buck, and let's just say it's the top, let's say it's hill country, so that people can draw this illustration in their mind. Um, a buck is betting on a southeast point in hill country okay so he's got like a point and you guys can see what i'm doing but here's this point heading southeast 
say the wind is perfectly at his back and he's at the tip of this point and he's facing down. If that wind changes one way or the other, he will get up and move to other ends of this point that will fit for the wind if he is winding, betting with the wind over his back okay. or vice versa, betting with the wind in his face. I see a lot of movement when you see drastic wind changes during the day mm -hmm. on bucks. Um, now that's not a hard and fast rule because I've seen places where that's not the case. And I've seen it like where I'm hoping to see that with deer in an area. Um, I tend to see a lot of that in Pennsylvania. I don't tend to see a lot of that in Alabama or Minnesota. So um, this is why it's so important that, and why I talked to, to Josh's point earlier about evidence-based um, uh, practice in nursing. Uh, you want data that's kind of from your cohort, uh, from your area, geopolitically and regionally and culturally. Um, and that's the same thing we do with the deer data. The predictions that you're getting in Minnesota and North Dakota are not going to have the same uh, training data that we're using for data that you get for predictions that you're getting in Texas. Um, it's yeah. realized and based on the area. That being said, to correlate, to answer your question, because I'm taking way too much time, the correlation that I do see with wind or that I have seen with wind in the past is when there are drastic wind changes throughout the day, um, a lot of mature bucks will readjust their bedding to allow them to either have it in their face or over their back and then be able to see. Um, and that's also another thing I see whenever I go to areas where bucks are bedding. Um, now I, I should preface this by saying, I've only visited places where I've had caller GPS data in two places, in Pennsylvania and in North Carolina. Um, both places, and just these, these two places, the bucks had exceptional viewing of the area when I was looking at where they were betting at throughout the day. They weren't like in a thicket. Like a lot of people think when they think about buck betting, they're like, that buck's in that nasty stuff or whatever. You know? I've even heard my good friend Johnny say it like, oh, he's really in there in that thicket. And I'm not saying Johnny's wrong because Johnny's killed more deer than CWD. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say is when I went to these areas where these bucks were betting, they had like a rock wall to their back or they had some kind of cover or thick to their back or they were just inside of that thick. And then when you looked where they were looking, they could see 300 degrees around them. And then they had that cover and they had that, you know, wind either in their face or over their back. Um, and they would choose that wind consistently. So if, if a buck's betting in an area with a wind over his back, he's generally betting in areas where he's always got the wind over his back. Um, but if a buck's choosing betting where the wind's in his face, other a lot of the other betting, his wind is in his face. It's a personality thing. Sure. So when you find betting mm -hmm. for an area where the wind's over the back, then maybe look on your map and look for other areas that'll give them visibility with wind over their back. But I don't, what I, what I will say, and just to put a bow on this, is when you hear these hard and fast rules about deer betting in the top third, that's just not the case. No. Uh, they're betting in the bottom thirds. They're betting in the very bottoms of these um, of these areas where draws come together. They're betting in, you know, especially when it's hot in in the where the water is. They're betting right on top of it. Um, but I just think that people get now. If someone were to say, "Where should I hunt in hill country?" I'd still say you probably, unless you really know what you're doing, you probably should stick to that top third because yep. it allows you to account for variables. That would otherwise get you busted if you're not that meticulous and you are trying to hunt a bottom. 
Yep. So, 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 so but that, that, that's what makes it difficult for people to understand. And when, when I try to talk to people about this is um, just because a tactic has made you successful, that doesn't mean that's what the deer is doing. It's just mm -hmm. what it allowed you to be successful. So now you just, so someone might be like, you know, uh, Christopher told me to bet to hunt the top third <laughs> and I've killed three bucks in the top third of these areas. And, and then they go right from there to deer only bed in the top third of of an area. And it's like, no, you are successful in the top third and you've got pictures of deer in the top third, um, but you've never looked in the bottoms or hunted the bottoms. Um, yep. In Pennsylvania, uh, he might kill me for saying this, but Bo <laughs> spends more time in the bottoms than he does up in the top thirds. Mm -hmm. But he's been down in those bottoms on every type of wind with milkweed mapping what the wind does at these stands and he knows exactly what he needs to do to make a move on these bucks who are using these bottoms and betting in these bottoms so um it's just like you said in the beginning uh don't limit yourself to a style of hunting also don't limit yourself to a way of saying this is how deer act um because they don't act away mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of how we started this conversation all i figured out is that there is no there isn't a way there's many ways um, and it's your job to get out there and scout and isolate the variables and make a decision based on the deer that you have in your area. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. it's very disheartening when I have a conversation with somebody that is stuck on something because it worked once or, you know, you'll have somebody that they saw a deer in a certain spot once they'll hunt that spot for the rest of their life. And, yep. and that's the way, and you cannot tell them otherwise. Man, that's probably that's as good of information as you really could give as far as you know telling people not to really get stuck in one train of thought or whatever like with the top third thing. I, I think there's a lot of good things happening in there, but uh, listening to other guys who hunt in a place close to me that I know you've hunted and Johnny's hunted and all that, there's talks of you know because of the way the benches roll in the bottom 25% of that place and all the pressure is up on top. You, f you get all your camera intel and everything on the benches on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And at, when you look on a topo map, you're like, yeah, <laughs> of course, you know, that, that bench is pretty difficult to get to from the bottom. It's not easy at all. And when you start at the top, the deer get bumped, you know, they get to receive the pressure up there. And as soon as they do, they all just, they just keep dipping over. And that's the way they travel because they never smell anybody there because everybody's hunting the top third because that was on YouTube six years ago. And now that's the yeah. only way we should ever do anything. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying this because I'm the best, I'm not the best deer hunter. I, I have not killed the most deer. Like I told you, I've killed six or seven deer, seven deer over 130 inches i'm pretty happy about that and uh but i'm not saying that because i'm the most successful deer hunter i'm saying that because i look at a ton of gps data and i'm not making statements that i don't see in the gps data and i see at least 50 percent of the time mature bucks betting in hill bottoms and, and spending a lot of time down there during the day that's mm -hmm. a nightmare that's it's not that's ugh. when I see them in the tops too. Sure. Um, it's just uh, my, my, the best advice I could ever give anyone is if you're not seeing deer doing what you're doing, do the exact opposite. Yeah. 
Yep. Just do another thing. Um, and and I'll even get stuck in these ruts too. I, I get I am I am still stuck on the scrape thing um, because I've always been successful on it. It's a lot of times you have a hard time abstracting yourself away from the data because you have like you have like an inner caveman that needs to be satiated, and he's telling you, "Hey, dude, we kill all of our bucks over scrapes. The meat is on the scrapes. Go to the scrapes." So I do it. Um, and I still do it, but you know, I'm hoping that people who are smarter than me or who listen more than I do, um, uh, are are taking to advantage all of the things that I've spent, you know, my head, my 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 life pounding my head against this monitor and learning, which is, um, deer have personalities. Um, they take advantage of the area. Uh, understand what the other hunters are doing, and if you do the opposite, you're probably going to pretty do pretty good in that area. So, like you said, if everyone's hunting them top thirds. Get down to those bottoms and run some cameras and figure out how you're going to get down there on a day. Um, and you'll probably be successful. Man, Absolutely. That's a yeah. damn good concluder there. Yeah, I was going to say. Any, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point to go out on. Um, Josh, Rick, how about you guys? What are your what are your concluders, takeaways from the, the episode, et cetera? Um, I'll, go, I'll go first. Um, I would recommend for anyone that's looking into Spartan Forge, you know, check it out. Uh, there is a free version, right, Bill, that where people have access to. They can go in, even if they don't want to pay, and just check it out. They can get on the free version and see what it's all about. Um, I can tell you, it's. I, I started using the application during the beta, and it's just continuously gotten better and better and better. And when I want detailed information, it is my go-to app. Um, so I appreciate that, that. Yeah, so that's that's kind of my my takeaway. I would just encourage people to check it out. I do want to say this much, and I know you know we could easily lie, of course, but we're not that type of person. Regardless of our affiliation with Bill, with sponsoring the expo or whatever, whatever would happen there, we say the same thing if we had zero relationship with bill um josh and i both hunt a lot of public land um as does rick and we we would not just say that it it's pretty damn legit and it's almost it's like talking to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about as soon as you spend just a little time with that app you'll be like oh okay and then mm -hmm you know, the ball will roll. So anyways, Rick. Yep. Uh, sorry, oh. can I just add one thing to that? My no, bad Josh, bad. you're not allowed. <laughs> I would just say off of your point, Chris, for anyone that's listening, if you talk to these people that are consistently killing deer, everyone is using multiple applications, right? Whether it be like Spartan Forge, they're also using Caltopo, Google Earth, like all that. Like most people will use multiple applications and we do too. Right. We'll, we'll kind of cross reference and check things. Absolutely. But, mm -hmm. but back to my point earlier, I always circle back to Spartan Forge for the detailed yep. stuff. So, yep. Good deal. Rick? Uh, as always, <clears throat> if you've got the ability to get somebody in the outdoors, please do so. If you're in Ohio, uh, by the time this comes out, it will be the last day of muzzleloader season, uh, I believe. It goes, it's uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, correct? Second to last day, it ends Tuesday. Oh, okay. Well, you got a couple days then. Oh, my video just went out. That's sweet. Um, <laughs> uh, 
get get people out. Uh, this is a great time of year. Like we talked about, scouting is coming up. That is the perfect time to get somebody out in the woods uh, or on the water, uh, trying to access those hard to reach places. This is a uh, a great time of year to start kind of thinking about trips and everything that you want to start looking at for the following year. And uh, in in terms of anything else, Bill, I'm just real appreciative of the company that you've created. I think it's great. I think you're doing something for the hunting industry that, as you stated earlier, gets lost a lot of times. I think a lot of places get really too big and they lose sight of what is important. And that is the people that you're creating your product for. It's, it, it's, it's to enhance their ability to do something that they love and they may not have the most time to go and do it. So, you know, man, I applaud you so much for creating a, a wonderful company that you have. Thank you. Appreciate You're welcome. You guys. Um, all right. Well, how do I follow all of this? Um, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to kind of hit on something that I think is pretty important. Um, in this day and age, we have a lot of people giving <clears throat> advice on the internet, whether it be on YouTube, podcasts, uh, Facebook, no longer MySpace. Um, <clears throat> that being said, uh, I would advise people, you know, it kind of hits on what Bill said with getting advice uh, for your area. If you're looking to hunt mature deer, check out somebody's photos, ask them for photos of deer they've taken. A lot of people spew a lot of information about equipment. You got to use this equipment. You got to use this. You got to do that. You got to hunt this way, whatever. And then you go and you look at their, their profile pics. Let's face it. I don't know a lot of human beings that aren't posting a damn nice deer in a background or a profile, a profile pic. Um, if they're not and they're taking them, they're probably the best killers in the country, <laughs> but that's pretty rare. Um, make sure that those people actually kill deer. You know, they're actually doing something that you want to achieve as a goal because it's so easy nowadays to just spew whatever you heard on uh, another podcast, YouTube channel show, whatever, and act like you sound like, you know, you know what you're talking about. And then before you know it, you know, you realize that this person, you know, they, they're posting a first deer pick a month later or something. And you're like, wait, you were, you were like telling people they were wrong about this and that and everything. Like, just make sure you kind of ask for credentials or whatever. And, and, you know, that doesn't mean that somebody should have a wall full of one eighties. That's pretty rare, but make sure that they actually kill deer or actually kill mature deer. You know, if, if you're looking to hunt on your piece of private land, you're probably better off talking to guys that hunt similarly to you. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to a guy that hunts publicly. I'm just simply saying dial it into your situation and make sure that somebody is actually qualified to give you advice. Um, there's nothing wrong with taking everything with a grain of salt but there's a lot of misinformation that gets spewed nowadays. And I find this very much so with archery more so than deer because deer, you know, as Bill said, a deer can really kind of do anything uh, in a given time. They have different personalities and everything, but you know, with archery, there's a lot of hard and fast rules. So 
Um, you see stuff like that all over, all over the internet. So anyways, that being said, Bill, we appreciate your time. Rick, you want to take us home, man? Yeah, uh, guys, it's been Fueled by the Outdoors. Been your host, Rick Cates and Chris Leppert. We've been joined tonight by Josh Luck and our very special guest, Mr. Bill Thompson. Thank you again for joining us. Guys, we will talk at you again next week. Later. See ya. Thanks, guys. Set these hands.